Welcome to March of History, episode four. I'm Trevor Furness here with my co-host and brother, Brandon Furness. And we're ready to bring you another saga of the story of Julius Caesar. This episode, as we said last time, we're going to talk a little bit about Spartacus and that revolt. Shout out to Kirk Douglas, who, as of the recording of this episode, just earlier this week, had died. I don't know when we're going to release the episode, but as of when we're recording it. So shout out and RIP to him, who, if you don't know, played the original Spartacus in Hollywood. So we left off. Caesar is elected military tribune in 72 or 71 BC. The reason that there's a a range of dates is earlier in Caesar's life, just like earlier in a lot of great figures' lives from antiquity, we don't really know a ton about it. Nowhere near as much as once they became somebody of note and everybody started writing down everything they did. When they were a young person, nobody really wrote that many things down. It's not as clear. There's not as much information, which is part of the reason why we're focusing on a bunch of different characters early on in Caesar's life. And then as he gets older, there's going to be a lot more sources, a lot more material on what he did and said, and we'll focus more on him. But he was elected military tribune, which is not to be confused with tribune of the plebs, which I don't know, we may have talked about this last time. Uh, And we'll talk about all the different government positions and kind of the ladder that you would climb to the consulship in another episode. But the military tribune of the plebs was not one of these positions was not a magistrate position in the government of Rome. It was more to be a legate or uh, like an assistant to the commanding general of an army. So uh, a number of young men would run for military tribune. They would be elected. They would be assigned to an army. They'd get to serve under some very high up commander, which is really a high up politician who had been giving command of the army and they would learn from them that way and and gain military service. At this point in the empire, a lot of the military tribunes are just appointed. They're not all elected, but it's a great honor to be one of the military tribunes that is elected by the people. And Caesar, of course, being the outstanding star that he is at every single space in his life, is elected one of these military tribunes and begins serving in the military again. So I'm, I'm a little confused about how this military tribune position works. So, I mean, I guess there, so there's a standard military rank that most people have to go up to get to the head of a legion. How does it work? How do these other young people come in as military tributes? Are they just from reputable families or from rich backgrounds? And so they get this privilege of shadowing or mentoring under the head of a legion? Yeah, that's, that's pretty much exactly it. They are from powerful and rich families. And they kind of get set up as commissioned officers in a sense right away. If you were a poor peasant or even a mid-level person that joined the military, by mid-level I mean in social status, then you would start out as a regular legionary and maybe you could rise up to the ranks to become a centurion, who's kind of like the non-commissioned officer of the Roman military, and then you could rise up further still it was rare the person that rose to the heights of power via just the military, Marius being one of those guys. Mostly the military was a politician's, so a politician would go into the military to gain legitimacy and to gain experience so that he can then go to the voters to run for his next position and say, hey, I fought in this war, I fled for for the Republic and all that kind of thing. The same way that in the U.S. today, people love to elect uh, veterans to Congress. In Rome, it was required. You could not serve in the Senate unless you had served in the military. So in the case of Caesar, at no point, I mean, did he go straight to Tribune or was there some kind of history before that? where he There was a history before that because remember he, he went to the East and he won that civic crown and he, he served under, I forget the guy's name, but they in this storming of the city of Mytilene, on that one Greek island. So he, he served in the military for a number of years when he had to flee Rome from Sola. And, but even then, he wouldn't have been a foot soldier. He would have been something above that, not a military tribune, but some kind of well-stationed soldier. The interesting thing is these assignments weren't so much given out by the state for the most part, the state being Rome. Rome, the government would not say, all right, Caesar, you're, you're going to go be an officer in this army. It was more done through personal connections. 
So Caesar would write to family connections out in, say, Greece or somewhere in the East and say, hey, I'm looking for a military posting. Do you know of any available? Would you be able to take me onto your staff? One of them would write back to him and say, hey, yes, I would love to have you on my staff and I would love to do this favor for you, knowing that later on in Caesar's career, he would do them a favor back. Okay. Right. So at any point, was Caesar actually like in battle or is he more just a a tactician or an officer? Well, again, there's not a lot written about his younger life, but we do know that he won that civic crown. And the only way you can win the civic crown is by saving another citizen's life by risking your own life. So I'd imagine you don't get that by sitting behind the front lines. Yeah. And he was known to be an excellent, I guess, swordsman and wielding weaponry. I don't know what the word you call for it, but he was good with weapons, essentially. Okay. And he was known to be a master horseman as well. But he wouldn't have been the grunt soldier taking commands from some peasant when he's the heir to the Julii, Julius Caesar. He would have had some kind of position that somebody from his family would have helped him get, just like every other young aristocrat in the military, to gain experience. And then the military tribune is the first time he's kind of had an official commission by the state position. And the military tribunes, there would be six tribunes to a legion. And uh, like I said, many of these would be appointed. Some of them would be elected. But they were all noblemen of some kind of merit, young guys. And so it was kind of the commander's job to mentor these guys. But it was also their job to make a good impression on him, the commander, and make a good impression for their family because the commander would be writing back to Rome to tell about different things, who had done what and how they were serving. And the military tribune, as I believe Tom Holland says in his book Rubicon, it was the first chance for a young aristocrat to test his popularity with the voters, because this is the first time he's elected to anything, right? Okay, yeah. And so we don't really know where he served, but we do know that the great slave war in Spartacus led went on during this time. So it's most likely he served in Italy. We don't know much about what he did in Italy, but there's a good chance he served under a man named Marcus Licinius Crassus. Reason being is because Crassus would go on to be Caesar's chief benefactor of his career, the guy that lent him money and helped open up doors to him and helped mentor him. And so it would make sense since Crassus was the one who eventually ended up commanding the Roman forces against Spartacus, that Caesar, having just been elected military tribune, would serve in Crassus's army. And this is, we don't know for sure, but this is probably where they met and became familiar with each other. Okay. Now, just uh, what age is Caesar at this point? Great question. So he's born in, I think, 100 BC. So that would make him 28, 27. Okay. Yeah. So this great slave war, what happens is Spartacus who is a Thracian, which is modern-day, I guess you might say, Bulgaria. So it's just east of Greece. Let me pull up a map. But he was a, they said, I mean, again, not a lot's written about Spartacus personally, but they believe that he was a deserter from the Roman legions. Now, that sounds bad, sounds cowardly. Obviously, the guy wasn't a coward. So maybe he just felt that he had been forced into the Roman legions and it wasn't fighting in his or his family's best interest or his people's best interest and decided I'm out of here. Who knows what? But he was probably a deserter from the Roman legions. And Thrace is, yeah, it's modern day Bulgaria. So if you look at Greece and you go to like north where Macedonia is and to the right of that bordering Turkey where Bulgaria is, is where the Thracians were from. And so he was a then sold into slavery as a gladiator in what we, or what's called Capua, which is a city down by, like, just north of, so it's in southern Italy, just north of Naples. And in 73 BC, a small group of gladiators led by Spartacus escape from their gladiator school outside of Capua, and they begin raiding along the countryside. At first, it's not a huge deal to the Romans. In their minds, slaves escape so often. They'll send out some forces to put them down and restore order. But the forces they keep sending to destroy these gladiator slaves keep being wiped out by the gladiators. This is 
terribly embarrassing to the Romans. They believe that slaves are servile by nature, that they couldn't possibly stand against freeborn Romans. The idea that these slaves were defeating small Roman forces was embarrassing. And so, I mean, it seems hard to believe that that Thracian was able to gather up and perform all of the logistics of an army. Did they happen to have like, a lot of slaves all in one spot, all rationed? And, and that was, was there some coincidence in that way involved? Or did he just go around from uh, pocket to pocket recruiting people and had charisma or, the, or at least the slaves are in a position where they were getting mistreated enough where they're willing to go along with them? Yeah. Well, at first, I don't think they had any grand plans outside of get the hell out of their gladiator school and go raiding and steal whatever riches and things and food that they could. And then when the Romans started sending, or I guess slaves from around the area started to hear about this and didn't like the way they were being treated, didn't like being slaves, obviously, who would? And they began fleeing, if they can, and joining up with Spartacus. After they begin to defeat a few Roman forces, they begin to gain some fame. Some some slaves start to flock to them. Not a ton, but a fair amount. And then Rome sends more of a legitimate army under the control of a praetor who would be one below a consul. And the gladiators and now the rest of the slaves with them retreat to Mount Vesuvius. And they famously retreat up there. And they hold their own, but they're kind of stuck up there. They're cornered up in the mountain. And the Romans think, oh, well, we just got to wait them out. Eventually, they're going to starve or they're going to get desperate. They're going to come down and try and fight us. And we can uh, keep them up there until they starve to death. And Spartacus and his forces do this famous move where they, they find a bunch of vines up at the top of the mountain and they start tying them all together. And the praetor of the Roman forces had been told there's only one way down the mountain from where they're at and the Romans have it blocked. And what Spartacus and his forces do is they tie these vines together and they start climbing down this sheer cliff face that was supposed to be impassable. And then they come from a number of them do this and they come from around the back of the Romans and basically smash the Roman force and uh, end up defeating it. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, smart, clever uh, strategy. Exactly, exactly. And it's really, it's one of the more remarkable stories I've ever heard because when you really think about it, all these people that were slaves, they're peoples, their tribes, their nations were defeated by the Romans when they were united among their countrymen, all speaking the same language, all fighting to defend their homeland, fighting for the same goal and fighting in the same manner. And the Roman armies defeated them. Now you have a bunch of disparate peoples that don't speak the same language, that aren't organized anywhere near as much as regular tribe of people would be. And they're managing to coalesce into a cohesive force that can defeat the Roman army when they couldn't do it when they were with their own people and all spoke the same language and all had the same style. It's pretty remarkable that way. Yeah, definitely. And the Romans underestimated that these were not regular slaves. These were gladiators. These were the superstar athletes of their day. You know, these were the NFL players. These were the UFC fighters of the day. These guys were very good at what they did, and they were trained for single combat. So at, at this point, the Colosseum was not around yet, right? But it was still pretty prevalent and popular to go to uh, gladiator games. Exactly. Yeah, the Colosseum wouldn't be built for another... 150 years. But gladiator games are very popular and they go right back to even before the founding of Rome. They were popular with the Etruscans, who were people that lived in the area of Rome and helped to influence the early Romans. And the Etruscans would have gladiator fights during, they call them funeral games. So when somebody died, you'd hold these gladiator games and they would entertain the funeral spectators by having these fights. Often not to the death, but it did happen at times. And now as the Republic ruined, things began to change. It became more common just to entertain the people in general with gladiator fights. They still did the funeral games, but gladiator games weren't relegated just to funeral games. And there was big money in gladiator games. It was a great way for a politician to put on a show for the people and to advertise, hey, this was Julius Caesar putting on this show for you. And the people will begin to know your name and, oh, wow, isn't that Julius Caesar so generous? He's paying for us to watch these amazing fights. So if you were a gladiator school, you could really make some money training them. Huh. 
but yeah, there was no Coliseum, but there were like smaller areas or they would make shift places. They would convert into fighting rings. Right. And Capua was a big training ground for gladiators. Capua. And so that's where Spartacus broke free from. Yeah. From an area just outside of Capua, Capua, which is in Southern Italy, just North of modern day Naples. So they defeat this Roman army at Mount Vesuvius, and then they, they begin roving the countryside. And of course, things just explode from there. Everybody begins to hear of this Spartacus, his, his right-hand man, Crixus, their army of gladiators and other slaves that are defeating Roman armies. This spreads like wildfire among the Romans, among their Italian allies, and among all of the slaves of Rome and the Italian allies. And slaves begin flocking to Spartacus in unheard of numbers. And now it becomes very serious to the Romans. Now it's not a joke anymore. Now it's not, oh, there's a little band of slaves down by Mount Vesuvius. Now this is threatening to their entire political infrastructure and their way of life. And they, they want to put this down brutally. Yeah, I would imagine that if there was any kind of rebellion in the U.S., it'd be, um, yeah, I mean, it'd be unheard of. It'd be, like, what's even happening? You wouldn't even believe it at first. Yeah, they, they thought this was, I mean, this was their kind of nightmare scenario. And they begin to send full, like, larger Roman armies, like legions against Spartacus. And a number of times, Spartacus defeats these armies, which, again, is remarkable. Because these people, when they were, I mean, not to beat a dead horse, but when they were all a cohesive unit of their own people, they all lost to Rome and got sold into slavery. And they're all different customs, and they have so many differences to pull them apart, but they're feeding Roman armies. And many of the ex-slaves in his group, they didn't like being slaves, obviously, but they did not object to slavery as an institution. They just objected to them being the slaves. They're perfectly fine with slavery as long as the Romans were their slaves, uh, which is a, is a rather odd thing. They did not object to the institution. They objected to the one being the ones who are the slaves. And a part of that's just because the entire Mediterranean slavery was a thing in pretty much anywhere you would go at that time. It would be hard for them to imagine a world in which there wasn't slavery. And, and probably before the Romans took them as slaves, they probably had slaves themselves. So the whole institution, they may have even been on both sides of it before. Yeah, yeah. So was Spartacus, was he educated at any point or is he, did he basically just grow up? We don't really know a lot about him. I mean, there's the rumors. And again, we don't know for certain that he was in the legions, which would help to explain how he was able to organize this ragtag army into a cohesive fighting unit. If he had been in the military for years, he would have that kind of experience. So eventually the Romans begin to panic and they, we, we got to do something about this. So enter Marcus Licinius Crassus, who they decide to give charge of the Roman army to put down Spartacus and his rebels once and for all. And as they see it, restore order to the Republic. And so now I'm going to Marcus Crassus, I'm going to call him from now on Crassus, is one of the key characters in this entire story of Julius Caesar. So I'm going to read a, kind of an introduction to him from Tom Holland's book, Rubicon. So starting with Crassus, let me just flip to the right page here. Here it goes. Quote, five years on, Sola's entourage was thronged with noblemen. Many of these were pursuing personal vendettas against the Marians. Preeminent among them was a member of Rome's most celebrated families, Marcus Licinius Crassus, whose father had led the opposition to Marius and had been executed for his pains. In the resulting purge, Crassus's brother had also been killed, and the family's estate seized in Italy. These holdings would have been considerable. Crassus's father had combined a glittering political career with a most unsenatorial interest in the import-export trade. Not for nothing was his family nicknamed Rich. Crassus would inherit from his father the recognition that wealth was the surest foundation of power. Later, he was being notorious for claiming that until a man could afford to maintain his own army, it was impossible for him to have too much money. This was a judgment founded on youthful experience. Fleeing his family's killers, the young Crassus traveled to Spain, where his father's spell as governor had been immensely profitable. Even hiding out on a remote beach, the fugitive had been able to live in style, with dependents delivering food and nubile slave girls to his cave. 
Then, after several months of subsisting on such provisions, the news of Cinna's death had encouraged Crassus to claim his patrimony in full. Despite being a private citizen, he had taken the unheard of step of recruiting his own army, a huge force of some two and a half thousand men. Crassus had then led it around the Mediterranean, sampling alliances with various other anti-Marian factions before finally sailing for Greece and throwing in his lot with Sola, who unsurprisingly had welcomed the new arrival with open arms. So that, that's one description of him as he suffered under Caesar's uncle, really, Marius, who killed his father and his brother. He was obsessed with money, and he was bold. He raised his own army illegally during the, the civil war between Marius and Sola. But I guess once there's a civil war going on, what does legality mean anyway? And he joined Sola. Yes, it seems yeah, it seems that uh, Marius made a huge mistake at the end of his life with all these random killings all of a sudden. It seems like he made a lot of enemies and tarnished an otherwise perfect reputation. It's exactly what he did, yeah. He had a glittering career as a hero of Rome and then he went in he, he refused to give up ambition. He he wouldn't go quietly. Yeah. He couldn't let it go. Yeah. There's an- uh, yeah, one thing that stuck out to me, you said that Crass's father was and I think you kind of touched on it, but briefly that his father was in like the, I guess, mercantile business, which I, I think you've said in the past is kind of looked down on in Roman noble culture. Yeah. Not only was it looked down on, it was illegal for senators to be involved in that. <laughs> oh, it was illegal. Okay. Yeah. It was downright illegal. Now, that's not to say that they didn't get involved in it. They were all involved in it to varying degrees, but Crassus's family was notoriously so involved. And I mean, they would hold, it's it's funny, it's not so different than shady billionaires and politicians today. And they would own through roundabout ways, these mercantile operations, but in ways it can't be traced back to them. Okay, yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And the Romans didn't see prestige in having money so much. It was good to have money, but that didn't bring prestige. Like in the U.S., like there's a, oh, the Forbes top 250 list. Uh, and like, who's there? Who's the richest man in the world? Is it Jeff Bezos? Is it Bill Gates? Romans, while well, I mean, it mattered who the richest person in Rome was, that was not the ultimate goal. Money was a tool and the tool which could be used to buy influence and power. Now, Crassus seems to have been far more focused on money for money's own sake than most any Romans, and they found that to be a quite odd and scandalous in many ways. He was known to be the richest man in Rome and known to be very greedy, too. In fact, there's stories of, so one of the ways that he would make his money, and he had a falling out with Sola after the Civil War because he would just throw people's names on the prescription list and have them killed and seize their property. But it actually worked out in Crassus's benefit because then it kind of distanced him from the unpopular dictator after that. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. To, I, it is different times, but to be that greedy where you're just tossing people's names on a, on a death list, having them murdered just to seize, to, to steal their property. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's funny because especially the Romans, sometimes they seem so similar to modern, at least modern Western values and when they write to each other and how they care about their families and this and that. And then you hear about things like that. And it's like, oh my God, like you'll be reading about Crassus and he seems somewhat relatable. Then you hear about something like that. And it's like, this guy's utterly ruthless in a way that I can't even begin to comprehend. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. It's the, yeah. I mean, by today's standards, he'd be just evil. <laughs> yeah. It's an absolute psychopath. Yes. Yeah, and what's more, he had fire brigades, the Romans, especially in these poor areas, they would have these, maybe up to like five story tall apartment complexes and they would have no plumbing obviously. And they would just, I mean, they would be teetering on like thin wood structures and every so often would collapse, but they were also tinder boxes that could light up very easily. And so not just in the poor areas, but anywhere, everything's built out of wood. So everything can go up in flames pretty easily in Rome. And Crassus would own these fire brigades that could run and put out the fire. <laughs> they would get to where the fire was and they would refuse to put the fire out until the people on who owned the property on fire and people on either side of the property on fire had sold their properties to Crassus at knockdown prices. <laughs> oh, wow. So if they refused, Crassus said, all right, I'll let your buildings burn down. I don't care. Or you accept and you can get some money for your building. So either your building burns down and you get nothing or Crassus pays you, I don't know, 
20% of what it's worth and you get some kind of money. And he made a lot of money doing that too, which obviously didn't buy you him a lot of friends among the people. Yeah, I was just about to say, I mean, did Crassus at any point, I, I think that he did, right, end up in political positions, but uh, how did he manage that with uh, such a, a poor reputation with the, the plebs? He seems to have been extremely feared as well. And I, I have another description of him because that describes his early life. And then this describes a bit more about how he operates politically. So in this section, Tom Holland's saying how the Romans had a very big distinction on behind the scenes power and overt in the in the full glow of public life power and behind the scenes political wheeling and dealing was looked down upon the idea that the show of power could be separated from the substance of power was anathema to how the Romans thought is what Tom Holland says. They can't imagine that the person that appears to have all the power is not the person that actually has all the power. So doing things behind the scenes in shady ways is usually looked down upon. Crassus is one of the few primetime senators that gets away with this kind of political fixing without it tarnishing his reputation. He walks this line that other people can't walk. And why or how is, I mean, I guess he had a unique personality and was able to do so. So I'll, I'll read this section real quick. So he, he says kind of what I said already. He goes, Tom Holland says, quote, the idea that power might be separable from glory in this way was mystifying to most Romans. Disturbing too. In any elections, Cathegus's unsavory reputation, and Cathegus is the guy that you know, does a lot of political fixing behind the scenes. In any election, Cathegus's unsavory reputation would have proved lethal to his hopes. His prestige was that of a lobbyist, nothing more. No Roman who aimed for the consulship could afford to keep the disreputable backrooms, I'm sorry, could afford to keep to the disreputable backrooms in which Cathegus lurked. The established aristocracy might sometimes find themselves reduced to employing him, but their reluctance to emulate his career patterns spoke loudly of their disdain. Yet, there was one nobleman, of high birth and overweening, almost threatening prestige, who had already long surpassed Cathegus in the dark arts of political fixing, and who had never betrayed the slightest scruples about doing so, who glided with equal facility through the shadows and the brilliant glare of public life, who, quote, would go to any effort, make himself amenable to anyone he came across just so long as he obtained what he wanted, end quote. And what Marcus Crassus wanted was clear to be the leading citizen in the state. Hmm. He's kind of a unique guy that way. He operates a lot behind the scenes and he gets away with it in a way that most people can't. No, I mean, you would think that with all this money and money that can be turned into power, that he would just do it the legitimate way. Why move behind the scenes? Did he see some kind of advantage to that? Was there? Yeah, was, I mean, he had massive advantage of, uh, to it. What was that? He had massive advantages to doing that. And I think it was just his, I think it was just his personality. He just couldn't help it. Okay. So it goes, he goes on to say about Crassus, and this might help to explain your question or answer your question. Unlike Catullus, who was kind of the arch conservative, and, and please don't get lost in all these other names. Crassus is the one that really matters here. Unlike Catullus, he stood at a remove from the dictator's regime, meaning Sola's regime. This was how he preferred to operate, without ties or obligations to any cause except his own. Principles to Crassus were merely gambits in a vast and complex game to be adopted and then sacrificed as strategy required. Rather than risk leaving his finger marks on anything, he employed proxies to test the limits on his behalf. Of such willing dependence, he had an endless supply. Crassus was assiduous at cultivating men on the make. When he wished to help promote them to high office or merely to have them serve him as patsies or ciphers, he would treat them all with the same menacing geniality, keeping open house, avoiding heirs, remembering the name of anyone he ever met. In the law courts, he would tirelessly plead for defendants who might later provide him with a return. A debt taken out with Crassus always came with heavy interest. Not for nothing did he operate as the Senate's banker. Oh, no, I didn't know that. He's also the Senate's banker. Well, so that's the thing. It's not an official position. Essentially, what that means is he, he was so rich, he would lend money to any senator that needed it. And everybody was all keeping up with the Joneses. Oh, I need to appear to be rich, even if I'm not rich. Just like a young Julius Caesar. 
Uh, I need to appear to be electable. I need to appear to this and that. So he would lend money to all these guys and he would charge no interest. Oh, it's a friendly loan. And that's what they said. It seems so insidious how friendly he was. But I mean, he had been around long enough that everybody knew that this was not legitimate friendliness. He it was like a mask. So he lends money just to call in favors later. Yeah, I mean, if he was your bank going so many of these senators, I mean, it's hard to imagine that any of them would even be more powerful than him. Would you, I wonder if he was the, at that point, the most powerful person in Rome. He's, I mean, he's pretty damn close to it. There was even a story of a tribune of the plebs that, well, I mean, to give a little preamble, the Romans would put hay on a bull's horns or one of its horns to show that it was dangerous. They would tie hay around it, and usually the, the horn that it chose to gore people with. And that would be if you're walking through a field and you see a bull or in a Roman's farm, you would know, oh, that bull's dangerous. Stay away from it, especially from that one side. And so this one tribune of the plebs, who were kind of the rabble-rousers, was rabble-rousing about something and talking about all the top senators. And one of them, some, one of his enemies said to him, well, I noticed you don't say anything about Marcus Licinius Crassus. Are you not brave enough to talk about him? And the Tribune goes, well, that bull has hay on both horns. I know better than that. Or <laughs> he says something along those lines, essentially saying that Crassus is an extremely dangerous man. Even I know better than that. So like, nobody wanted to talk about him. They all knew how dangerous he was, despite how friendly he acted. Wow, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, yeah I can imagine that'd be... So I, I guess... Uh... At this point, does he have a position at all, or he just... Yeah, he just, so he, he's a praetor, and this is, I guess, a good time maybe to talk about the different positions in Rome. So there was tribune of the plebs, which you had to be a, a plebeian or plebeian to hold that position, and there's the difference between the patricians and the plebeians in that like Julius Caesar's a patrician. They are some of the founding families of Rome, the original aristocracy. Things have changed a lot since the original days of the Republic. The Republic's near 500 years old now. So there are many plebeian families that you would consider to be noble and have even held many more consulships and honors than the patrician families have. And yet some things haven't changed. The Tribune of the Plebs as a position was created to defend the interest of the plebs against the overweening ambitions of the patricians. So they had something called a veto uh, the right to veto, and they could veto anything, which means they could bring the government to a halt if they wanted to. Any, and it, 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 The reason they had this veto was that if patricians tried to pass laws that were against the interests of the plebs, a tribune of the pleb could just veto that law and stop it. So it wasn't on the, mil, on the rung of political positions. It wasn't very high. It was one of the lower ones, but they had this immense power. And they could also put laws directly to the people. That's one of the interesting things is that the Senate didn't actually pass laws in Rome. The Senate wasn't even elected. It's not like the U.S. Senate today. It was more of a club that you got into by virtue of how much money you had, because there's a money requirement, and you're, then the nobility of your birth. And the Senate was supposed to guide Rome. So the Senate would suggest a law, and then it was taken to the people, and the people were devoted into law based on the Senate's recommendations. And in the conservatives' perfect world, the people always took the guidance of the wise senators that were aware of what was happening around the empire and knew best. That wasn't always the case. And sometimes tribunes or other senators would take laws directly to the people and try and leave the Senate out altogether. That the Senate did not like and reacted violently too often. Uh, so yeah, so back to the positions, you had the tribunes of the pleb, Tribunes of the plebs who were often rabble-rousers, they would try to create a splash in your year. They could veto each other's laws, so a lot of times they would get in fights with each other. And the person of a tribune was considered sacrosanct. So nobody was allowed to harm a tribune. You couldn't punch one, you couldn't hit one, you couldn't grab onto one. It was considered sacrilegious to do so, to protect them, because it was obvious that their position would be quite controversial to the ruling classes. So that was one position not a required position to get to the top rung, and, only, and a patrician could not hold that position. Now, the first required position was a quaestor, and a quaestor dealt with the money of Rome, uh, basically dealt with the treasury. That would be your first position. And then you had an optional position of aedile, and aedile would, I mean, they were in charge of a few different things, but the infrastructure of the city, improving that, and of holding public games, 
and that's an optional position you could hold. You didn't have to hold that one, and it was a very expensive one, so you had to spend a ton of money to put on these games for the people, and they expected it. And then you could be elected Praetor, which is what Crassus was, and that's a required position almost near the top then, and then you're elected a consul after that. Now, all these positions only hold power for one year because the Romans never wanted anybody to have power for more than one year or else it might corrupt them. They might gather too much of a power base in that position. And each one of these positions, so you might have, I don't know how many exactly, but you might have 20 quaestors elected, right? And then you move up to aediles and maybe there's only 12 aediles elected. And then you move up to praetors, maybe there's only eight praetors elected. And there's only two consuls elected. So it gets increasingly more competitive. It's a bottleneck, right? You, know, you, you and a bunch of people your age might be elected quaestors, but only two of you can be elected consuls in your year. And that's what they would call it. If there's a, you could have to be 30 to run for quaestor. So if you were elected quaestor at 30, you were elected quaestor in your year. If you'd missed it the first year and got it the second year, you weren't elected in your year. And so it was a great achievement to be elected to every position in your year, the earliest year that you could do so. Yeah, do we have examples of who's done that? Yeah, Cicero did that. Cicero was extremely proud of himself for always Uh, having been elected in his year. And Caesar was as well. Impressive. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't unheard of. If you were looked at as a superstar, you would probably be elected in your year to everywhere. But to say a little bit more about Crassus, Tom Holland goes on to say, Crassus had deeper funds than anyone else in Rome. Slaves, mines, and real estate remained his principal investments, but he regarded no scam as too low if it would add to his coffers. And here's the example I gave before. It continues, whenever a house went up in flames, Crassus would have his private fleet brigade rush to the scene, then refused to extinguish the fire until the owner had sold him the property cheap. Prosecuted for sleeping with a vestal virgin, a particularly sacrilegious crime, he could protest that he had only seduced the woman in order to snap up her property and be believed. (laughs) Despite his reputation for avarice or greed, however, Crassus lived simply, or when his interests were not at stake, he could prove notoriously mean. So I always think it's one of the funniest stories that vestal virgins were this group that were supposed to remain virgins until I believe they were 36, and they were keepers of this of the Vestal flame, and the god there's the goddess Vesta, and she had a flame, and they were, they were the keepers of it. And so they themselves had to keep pure through this vow of chastity. So it was a sacrilegious crime to try to try to seduce a Vestal virgin, and Crassus was accused of this. And, he, and he, rather than saying, oh, no, I did none of this when he was brought before court, he said, I was just trying to seduce her so that I could buy her property at a knockdown price. And if anybody else said this, it would have seemed like a, like some kind of like terrible, crappy like joke of an excuse. But everybody knew Crassus and his personality, and they were like, oh, OK, well, that makes sense. That's probably accurate. <laughs> so, I mean, so he still committed the, the sacrilege, but then. I guess he didn't he didn't really sleep with her, I guess. Uh and I think he wasn't the only one accused. Somebody else was too. And I think that guy was more was was a very seedy guy. So I think the people blamed him more. Okay. It says uh, a philosopher Alexander, to whom Crassus had provided grudging hospitality, would be lent a cloak for journeys, then required to give it back. Alexander, as a Greek, did not have the vote. Had he been a citizen, he would have been encouraged to borrow far more than a cloak. The more eminent his status, the more spectacularly he would have been encouraged to fall into debt. Money was easily Crassus's favorite instrument of power. The threads of gold he spun entangled the whole republic. Little could happen in Rome of which Crassus was not immediately aware. Sensitive as he was to every tremor, every fluttering of every fly caught in his web. So I feel like that gives you a great feel for who this guy is and, and how powerful he is. And he's put in charge of this to put down the slave revolt. And his very first battle against Spartacus, his army's defeated. And Crassus, showing that ruthless streak that he had, the Roman military had a practice called decimation, which meant that whatever group of Roman soldiers who hadn't performed well or had been cowards, one out of every 10 at random would be killed. Because they were all divided into groups of tens that they would sleep together in the same tent. So one out of the, each group of ten would be randomly assigned to be killed. 
and the other nine would be given clubs to beat their comrade to death. And you got to imagine these guys, they do everything together. They live together. They sleep together. They cook together. They fight together. They work together. I mean, they probably feel like brothers in arms and the people you would be closest to would be in your tent. And now the people closest to you have to beat you to death with clubs. And you, as one of the people in the tent, that's a punishment to you too, because you have to beat one of your closest friends to death with a club, even though that person may have been the one who was being brave and not the one that was being cowardly, but it was a collective punishment. And, but this, by the time of Caesar's time had fallen out of fashion, it was considered barbaric and old fashioned and something that was done in the early Republic, but not something that more enlightened Romans did. And Crassus brought this back and to teach his army discipline, he had them decimated and he wanted that he wanted his soldiers to be more afraid of him and his commanders than they were of Spartacus and his troops. Uh, so I wonder if this was like an actual, I mean, what was the reason that they lost in the first place that they feared Spartacus's troops or, or lack of discipline or was it just a lack of experience? Yeah, it could have been both. The Roman military was infamous for its discipline. If you were caught sleeping at your post when you were supposed to be on sentry duty, uh, the punishment was just death. No whippings, nothing like that. You were just dead. The way they saw it, you sleeping could have led to everybody else dying, so they would just kill you. Yeah, I mean, that seems impossible. I mean, that, think about how easy it is when you're not staying up odd hours just uh, in, in some kind of office or classroom. You might just doze off, and they had no no coffee or anything back then. It's easy to see that happening, and then that's it. I know, yeah, it would be extremely tough. But I guess if you had it in your mind that hey, I'm dead if I fall asleep, man, yeah, it'd be a kind of a Freddy Krueger situation. Right. <laughs> so he does that and kind of stiffens his army's resolve. I mean, now they're terrified more of him than of Spartacus, and uh, they eventually pin down Spartacus. And the Spartacus troops eventually bust through Crassus's forces and escape and suddenly turn back. And they turn back to confront Crassus, who's been following them with his army. And they fight Crassus and his army, and Crassus destroys them finally. And a small band of them survives. So Spartacus himself charges into the thick of the fray and fights to the death. But his body is never recovered. So while he is charging to the thick of the battle, and I believe people even said they saw him die, nobody ever found his body. It's kind of fascinating. But a small band from this battle escapes of the slaves, and they head north and enter this guy, Pompey, who we haven't introduced yet. Pompey comes from Spain with his army, and he had just been victorious in Spain. And he finds this little group of soldiers, and he mops them up, And then he writes to the Senate saying that he had destroyed the Spartacus army and he had saved the Republic from Spartacus. (laughs) And and he steals steals Crassus' thunder, even though Crassus did all the hard work. And so wait, so Pompey was involved? He was there or what was he? He he had been fighting this battle in Spain against... So the war with Marius really still hadn't been over. Quintus Sertorius was a general in Spain who was waging war against the Republic still. But... Pompey had just defeated him finally after years of battling and was on his way back from Spain and was in northern Italy coming down from the Alps and sees this band of maybe a few thousand of of the slaves left and kills them all because Pompey's pretty ruthless and then writes to the Senate saying that he defeated Spartacus. (laughs) Well, so did did people take it, his words at face value or did they? Yes, some some did. (laughs) So let me introduce Pompey because Pompey and Crassus had bad blood even before this. They were notorious enemies of each other. And so Pompey is kind of the golden boy that breaks every single rule or custom in the book, in Roman politics, and seems to get away with all of it. And it infuriates Crassus. And he has a reputation for swooping in after or like just about when a battle or campaign is decided and kind of mopping things up and then taking credit for them, which you can imagine Crassus doesn't like that much either. So to introduce Pompey, let's see here. So it says about Crassus, uh, yet to Crassus's chagrin, he found himself overshadowed by one rival to whom the laws of political gravity 
appeared simply not to apply. The show stealer, as ever, was Pompey. Where Crassus maneuvered to enjoy the substance of power, Pompey never ceased to enjoy the glittering and clamor of its show. By play-acting the general, he rapidly became the genuine thing, and not merely a general, but the darling of Rome. The, quote, teenage butcher, as he was nicknamed, had an innocence charm. Quote, nothing was more delicate than Poppy's cheeks, we are told. Whenever he felt people's eyes on him, he would go bright red, end quote. To the public, such blushes were an enduring reminder of their hero's youth, of the boyish modesty that appeared all the more esteemable when set against the unparalleled arc of his rise. What citizen had not dared to imagine himself doing as Pompey had done, seizing the chance for glory with both hands and soaring toward the stars? The Romans' tolerance of his career betrayed the depth of their crush. Far from provoking their jealousy, Pompey enabled them to live out, however vicariously, their deepest fantasies and dreams. So Pompey, like Crassus, also raised his own private army during the Marius Sola civil war, an even bigger army than Crassus. And so Crassus had done it first, but then Pompey did it and overshadowed him. So this is a recurring theme. And so Pompey had become kind of this golden boy under Sola, and Sola used him to great effect to defeat his enemies. And Pompey was considered especially vicious in war. Yeah, uh, so how called, did he even find himself in this position? I mean, is he... He raised an army bigger than Crassus. I mean, he must have money, right? And if he's... Yeah, no, he's... Uh, I don't know how to say the word, but... Pisantine or Picantine. It's an area of Italy where his family was extremely wealthy. And his father had been, I believe, a consul before him, but the first member of his family to be consul. So he's kind of an outsider to Rome in many ways. Like Cicero. Place, so he's not, a, he's not a Roman? He's not per se, but yet he seems... Nobody ever gives him flack for it. Huh. Um, he's like, again, like none, none of the normal rules seem to apply to Pompey. And so he's super wealthy from that already and raises this army from his area of Italy. That's all loyal to his family and joins Sola's cause. And Sola sends him to Africa and he defeats a bunch of Marian rebels there. And he's doing this all so young. And so he goes on to say, Pompey's superstardom was something that even Sola had been forced to respect. No one else had tested the limits of the dictator's patience quite like Pompey, the spoiled and favored son. After routing the Marian armies in Africa, he had crossed back to Italy and refused a direct order to disband his legions, not with any intention of toppling Sola's regime, but because, like a small child with his eye on a new and glittering treat, he wanted a triumph. Sola, either in mockery or admiration, had agreed to confirm his protege in the title awarded him by his troops, Magnus, or the Great. The granting of the supreme honor of a triumph, however, to a man who had not even been a senator had given him pause. Pompey, typically, had met condescension with impudence. Quote, more people worshipped the rising than the setting sun, end quote, he had told the aging dictator to his face. Sola, warily, had at last given way. Pompey, no doubt, blushing becomingly, had duly ridden in the triumph through the streets, the spoils of his victories preceding him, cheered to the hilt by his adoring fans, and not even 25. Wow. So, and I love that line because, I mean, this psychopath that was Sola, and when Sola says no to his triumph, Pompey says to him, I just want to repeat this, more people worship the rising than the setting sun meaning I'm Pompey, I'm not even 25, I'm the rising sun, you're Sola, you're old, you're the setting sun, more people worship me than you. <laughs> and to say that to his face like that, that is boldness. That is a bold yeah. character right there. Yeah, I mean, he could have just been killed right then and there, and we wouldn't even be hearing about him. Could have, yeah, about- absolutely. And he would go on to be called Pompey Magnus, which is Pompey the Great, which he himself and his troops gave him the old nickname. And that's kind of who Pompey is. He's the golden boy that skips all the steps. He'll go on to become consul, and he's never held a position before that. It's not the way that works. Uh, he holds a triumph, as you saw. He demanded a triumph from Sola. A triumph was a parade through the streets of Rome after a major military victory, and it only happened when your troops declared you imperator in the field after a military victory. And it was reserved for senators who had like, maybe already been consul and it was even less likely to get a triumph than it was to become consul. 
it was once in a lifetime, if that. Most people never even achieved a triumph. Uh, you would go through the streets on a chariot uh, with your face painted red like the gods. The statues of the gods always had their faces painted red, uh, or at least Jupiter did. And you'd ride on a chariot through the streets as the crowds thronged and cheered and slaves were from the defeated armies were led in front of you. And if you had captured the barbarian king, they would be transported in chains while everybody in Rome booed them and threw stuff at them until the end of the triumph, they would be strangled to death ritually to the delight of the Roman people. And they would carry posters and signs showing how many people killed and how many armies defeated and how many cities sacked. And it showed the people of Rome what their generals were doing and, and how they were defeating all these foreign peoples. And that's why they would parade the peoples in front of the Roman people was to show, look at these foreign barbarians from far off distant lands you can't even begin to imagine, and we defeated them. You know, nobody had a mental map of where these places were. They just knew that they were mysterious lands, and they might not even believe that they exist unless they actually saw proof of them. If it was a campaign in Africa, they would bring in maybe elephants and lions and leopards, which the people of Rome would ogle and awe at. And uh, as the uh, triumphing general rode through a chariot in the street, face painted like a god, People crying and adoring and worshiping him. A slave stood on the chariot next to him, whispering in his ear over and over again, remember, you are only a man. I love uh, that. Yeah, yeah, such a, an image. Yeah, I mean, the Romans knew how to, how to combine kind of efficiency and hard work with showmanship, which is an unusual combination. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, not to let one uh, get carried away, not to let the showmanship get carried away, or you know, not to be too austere and and you know, not celebrate the victories to inspire new ones. Exactly, exactly. So Pompey just routinely he skips all the rules. Before the age of twenty five, he's having a triumph. They send him to Spain to put down this Quintus Sertorius, and by the time Pompey gets there, I think that the tide of the battle had already started to go against Quintus Sertorius and in favor of Rome. But of course, Pompey comes in last minute. And I mean, he did fight a lot in that battle, but they defeat him. And then on his way home, he steals Crassus with Spartacus. And that becomes kind of what he's known for, even though he is known to be one of Rome's great generals of all time. And there, there's all these stories of him fighting on the front lines with his troops and being in fantastic shape. Uh, he was a fantastic administrator just knew how to organize people and resources and him and Crassus despised each other seemed to be exact opposites so they would always be enemies you know at any given issue in the republic yeah i, I was going to ask up until just now it seemed like you know what's the deal with this pompey guy he doesn't seem to be, he just has rosy pudgy cheeks why why does everyone <laughs> like and but i guess so yeah it sounds like you're saying he's very skilled at administering, but I, I wonder if there was some kind of way that he did things that was, I guess, kind of maybe captured the imagination. It was entertaining or uh, interesting to, to see, to witness that made people not only recognize that he was good at things, but also kind of uh, celebrate him and kind of uh, fall in love with the, his uh, whatever it was that he must have been doing something to uh, get that kind of reaction. Yeah. And I think a lot of this was just like these guys' personalities. Like I think there was just something about his personality that made the people adore him and love him because there's been other people that tried to kind of skip rungs in the political ladder and, and things like that. And for the most part, everybody hated them for it. Like the Romans were a bunch of haters. It's funny. Or at least the, the aristocrats were. Everybody wanted to be the top man in Rome. But if you were the top man in Rome, everybody hated you and tried to tear you down. <laughs> so... Mm -hmm. And they thought that, that not only was that not a bad thing, that that was a good thing because that meant that no one person would ever dominate for too long and take over the government as a dictator or as an autocrat. Since they were constantly tearing each other down, it kept it as a republic. But Pompey, again, he seems to have defied all the laws of politics, and they seem to have loved the fact that he skipped all the the wrongs on the ladder. Most people couldn't even serve in government yet until they were 30. They couldn't be a quaestor until they were 30. Here he is, he's not even 25, and he's holding triumphs. That's absurd. That's not the way things are supposed to work. And who granted him the triumph? Sola, the arch-conservative, the defender of the republic's norms, you know? So he's, he's, he's breaking every single rule. 
he also has what they call a, a, a quiff to his hair. So like his front of his hair sticks up just naturally. And people were to say that it reminded them of pictures of Alexander. And so he'd always try to pretend to be Alexander the Great throughout his career, even dressing like Alexander at times. Huh, yeah, I wonder like <laughs> how much of a role that played in it. Like, what if that was like a big reason why <laughs> people thought that he was uh, so great? But I'm sure I'm sure there's a lot more to it. Could have been, but no, he, he was, it's, it's interesting because he'll eventually become a, a big, what, an enemy of Caesar's, but for much of his career, he was considered probably to be the greatest Roman general of all time until Caesar came around. He has this reputation for, yes, stealing the show at the last minute, but when you really look at his career, there's no denying he was remarkable, not just in his boldness and the risks that he would take. But just at getting things done and organizing things, you'll see as time goes on, uh, they'll commission him, they'll give him special commission after special commission that Rome would never give to anybody else because all of the senators are very suspicious of each other and don't want to give each other special prizes. For whatever reason, they're, they're always okay with giving it to Pompey. Not everybody is, but enough of them are. So he'll have all these special commissions and he'll show how fantastic of an organizer he is. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to believe that Someone could even be known as like such a good organizer, administrator. I'd be curious with any of these people, but just to see what they were, what it was that they're actually doing in person that inspired people. Yeah, yeah, no, it definitely would be. It's funny. In some ways, he was actually held back by the fact that he cut all the corners because he didn't really know how the Senate worked. <laughs> he didn't really know the intricacies of the procedures and how things were supposed to go. Because, I mean, it's, it's a bureaucracy in some ways. Certain things have to happen in certain orders in order for things to get done, and he didn't know any of this. Even the uh, like mode of address, it's like the State of the Union in the United States. First, this happens, and then the Speaker of the House introduces the president, and then this happens, and then this person speaks. He didn't know any of that. And so he even had to have like one of his friends write him a series of tips on how to function in the Senate so that he wouldn't embarrass himself once he became consul. Because before he was consul, I don't think he was even in the Senate. Yeah, it's, that's pretty remarkable. Did he ha did Pompey have some kind of mentor to someone that he kind of came up under? Or his father was uh, Pompey Strabo or, or Pompey Cross-eyed is what, is what oh, that wow. means. The Romans are very literal with their nicknames and their naming. Uh -huh. And his father was was not a very popular person. Had become consul, but. He I don't know. There's like two reports of his death, and the the total of it might have been that. He was sick and dying in his tent. And then when he was in his tent was then struck by lightning <laughs> <laughs> and then died. And then I think the people of Rome hated him so much that they ran. This is like during the Civil War. They ran out and started like tearing his body to pieces in the streets. I think people did not like him very much. And he was known to be extremely ruthless, which is where Pompey got it from. So his father had these private armies kind of to begin with. And then Pompey just kind of inherited them. Huh, so he, I mean, his father's similar in that he had lots of power, influence, but then different in that he was hated versus Pompey was loved. But yeah, no, it is true. It's, it could almost be seen as a reaction against his father to try and prove to everybody, hey, guys, I'm not like my father and try to make himself as likable as possible. His father was so hated. Yeah. Or maybe maybe Pompey was just a very different person, but he was raised in his basically in his father's army, but he didn't have deep-seated political convictions, they even say that before he joined Sola's side, he was spotted sniffing around. <laughs> I mean, the, literally the words they use are sniffing around Cinna's camps to try and see if he could gain a commission from Cinna, who was one of Marius's allies, and then decided he didn't like what he saw there, so then he went and joined Sola. So he had a, a quite an eye for picking the right side that was going to win. Huh. Yeah, I wonder how he picked Marius's side if... I mean, maybe, I don't know if, oh, wait, this is Pompey or his father? Oh, this is Pompey. This is Pompey himself, okay. But yeah, Tom Holland goes on, and I promise in not all podcast episodes, I'm not going to read out of the book so often, because I don't, want, I don't want this podcast to become like a book report where I just read what other people wrote. But I think that in introducing these characters, Tom Holland does so well. So just for this episode, I'm doing this. He goes on to say, quote, Crassus, faced with such a threat like Pompey, appears to have reevaluated his strategy. Immense though his own prestige was, it remained half in the shadows. Now was the time to move into the full glare of public approbation. Crassus was no Cathegus. 
He knew perfectly well that power without glory would always be limited, especially in competition with a rival such as Pompey. He needed a smashing victory of his own, and fast, but where, and against whom? Suitable enemies were in frustratingly short supply. And then suddenly, like a storm out of the blue, his opportunity arrived. And that's when Spartacus comes around, and that was his great opportunity to overshadow Pompey, and Pompey still stole his glory. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you would think that that would just ruin his reputation, that you know, he could do that to you know, some lesser person of Rome, but to do it to Crassus, you would think that Crassus would have the power to you know, destroy Pompey's reputation. Yeah, for sure. Oh, and I've forgotten to mention that when Crassus did defeat the slave army, he wanted to make his own sort of impression on the people and on the world and to make sure that no slave revolts ever happen again. And maybe this is his own twisted way of trying to overshadow Pompey. He crucifies a slave along one of the main roads leading to Rome. Uh, I think every, I don't know, 100, 200 feet, he crucifies a slave going for miles. I think there's thousands of slaves in total. So if you've seen Game of Thrones, and I don't want to give anything away, but there's a a scene where the masters of one of the, the slave cities crucify all these slaves pointing to their city, and it goes on for miles. That's taken direct from what Crassus did to the Spartacus rebels, crucifying one after another along this road so that every slave and every person that would travel this road to and from Rome would see this is what happens to slaves that rebel against Rome. Wow. And how was the reception for that? Uh, I think people thought it was barbaric, but who's going to tell Crassus that he can't do that? They would think that that was barbaric. That was across the line, but... So, I mean, and at these triumphs, they were strangling people as part of a ceremony. Yeah, no, the Romans are funny. The things that, that get them worked up and the things that they think are okay, they're very, or at least the people are very, the words capricious. Like they're back and like they're hot and cold. They're very difficult to figure out what they, what they actually want. Yeah. I'm trying to see one more thing. Here it is. In an attempt to counteract, this is from Tom Holland again, quote, in an attempt to counteract Pompey's glory hogging, he ordered all the prisoners he had captured to be crucified along the Appian Way for more than a hundred miles along Italy's busiest road, a cross with the body of a slave nailed to it stood every 40 yards, gruesome billboards advertising Crassus's victory. Yeah, I mean, besides the obvious repulsion of it, it's, a, I mean, some other reasons, I mean, the disease that would be spread by that. And then also, I'm sure the masters who own the slaves weren't happy that their slaves were being killed. <laughs> yeah, Maybe, I but I mean, these, these were all people who had rebelled against the empire yeah, now true. or against the Republic. But as brutal as it was, and whether it was for this reason or who knows if this was even the reason that it happened, but it seems to have worked in that there wasn't another major slave rebellion for like the rest of the history of the empire, I think. Which is yeah. hundreds of years. Yeah. And whether that's because Crassus did that or had nothing to do with that, I don't know, but it's interesting. But we're well over our hour now, so oh well, it happens. But I'm glad we got we had a chance to introduce Pompey and Crassus today. We talked about the Spartacus Rebellion that's been put down next week. Let me pull up my notes. Or next episode. I'm going to introduce two more characters. And I'll say this to kind of give you a little teaser. I see Caesar in all of his abilities and how fast he moves and how quick he is with everything that he does to be this almost unstoppable force. Nothing stands in his way. He bowls everybody over with with sheer speed and ability that he has for everything that he does. But he meets his match finally in a man named Cato. Cato is the immovable object to Caesar's unstoppable force. And Cato will just try to block him at every turn, and they become the bitterest of enemies, and their feud spans for decades in the Senate. So he's Caesar's probably greatest enemy, so we're going to introduce him in next episode. March of history. 